Okay, uh, let me see if I'm on. Good morning. Um, one piece of housekeeping. It's hard to believe that we got today and next Wednesday, and that's it. We'll finish for the summer. If, if you haven't had enough C.S. Lewis, what I handed out to some of you, and they're scattered around the room, this is the C.S. Lewis Society of the Triad, uh, which me, along with some help, we founded about eight, eight years ago. And um, uh, we meet once a month on the first Thursday night of the month because the Inklings met on Thursdays as well as Mondays. We meet once a month on Thursday night in the living room at River Landing. Uh, they provide us hot water, so we have hot tea uh, out of memory of C.S. Lewis. And uh, we have one member that brings us um, homemade Scottish shortbread every, every meeting. So we meet once a month. This is our reading list, once a month from September to June. This is our reading list. Um, you notice that we try not to have the reading too, too many pages. Now, for the September session, that is our summer read. So that is a whole volume. It's the third volume of a life, life of C.S. Lewis. But it's very interesting. You notice this is his last, uh, last years of his life after World War II. So it's during this period when he wrote... Chronicles of Narnia, when he met Joy Davidman, when he moved to Cambridge University. Uh, it was in his years of declining health. After Joy Davidman died, he was in declining health. He passed away. But so, that, so the book that we kind of discuss in September, we spent the whole summer reading. But most of the rest, try to keep the reading down to not too much because all of us have other daytime jobs and are reading other things that we need to be reading. Uh, we... we, we um, we read material from C.S. Lewis, or material about C.S. Lewis, or material that influenced C.S. Lewis, such as you see the December book that we'll discuss, The Well at, at the World's End, which by the way, you encountered that phrase, the world's end, um, in your reading this week, and you'll see it more next week in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, that was a fantasy, a fairy tale that, um, C.S. Lewis was thought, he thought it was like the best ever written, uh, that, that fairy tale by William Morris. So it influenced him. As down on the May reading, that's, that's a work by G.K. Chesterton, who was a great defender of the Orthodox Christian faith, uh, who also had great influence on C.S. Lewis. So we either read books that influence Lewis, books about Lewis, or books by Lewis. And uh, we're always very grateful that the books by Lewis are usually short, such as The Problem of Pain. You notice the March book is The Silver Chair, which is the next book um, in the Caspian series, after the two we've looked at in the Chronicles this summer. Uh, the Silver Chair is, is what, what brings Caspian's life to an end. Uh, the last book of the year is the toughest one, and I put it on the list to make me try to read it again. Um, it's all of his stuff significant. That's not one of his easiest books. We put that in our June reading because by that point, some people done gone to the mountains and the beach and they're not there anyway. Uh, only the hardy ones will be there through miracles. The rest of them is pretty easy reading. You notice we even do screw tape letters over two months because the screw tape letters tend to create lots of conversation. We, we do meet in the living room there at River Landing. Um, 
few clergy in the group, mostly laity from around the triad. A uh, few folks know quite a bit about C.S. Lewis. Some people just want to see why we make a big deal out of C.S. Lewis, and they've, they've heard the name. Uh, so it's a diversity in, in, the, in, the, in the room. Uh, but anyway, if you're interested, if you're really interested, just let me know. I'll put you on the mailing list uh, for this group. Um, every now and again, something changes. Uh, you know, we have to move the date. Not too often, but we have to move the date or something. Besides, if you give me your email, I'll put you on the list and you can get some news from us throughout the year. But anyway, that will give you, if you get impassioned about CS Lewis, that will give you a chance to do more. So, with that, um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Particularly, we're going to look at chapters 11, 12, and 13. You may have noticed in 13, the whole tenor of the book changes. You're getting close to the, to the, to the world's end. You're getting close to Aslan's world, Aslan's land. And you'll notice um, the, the tenor of the book changes dramatically. Particularly, and one of the ways he wants to help you notice that is it does come after the Dark Island. Anything's, anything feels nice after the Dark Island. But as you head past the Dark Island, head toward the east, uh, you'll, you'll notice a substantial change. Uh, because from chapter 13, chapter 13 is the beginning of the end. And the end is amazing, is beautiful. We are all convinced he thought this was going to be the last of the Chronicles. Uh, because he is very clear about Jesus and Aslan, and who, he's very clear about all that. It's some of the strongest allusions to the Bible in the, in the concluding chapters of, of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So, um, yeah, we're getting into some really, really good stuff. So, chapter 11, real fast. We can go through some of this quickly. The duffel puds are made happy. Uh, remember the duffel puds. They've been invisible up to this point. Uh, we've had about three chapters to think about the duffel puds. Um, you haven't seen them yet. They actually haven't even received their name yet. They're just duffers at this point. Um, you, have, you, have, you have heard them. Uh, you have uh, encountered them. You've seen them try to serve a meal. Um, but Lucy is going to be the one. You saw it last week. She's the one that goes to the magic book and reads the spell to make them visible. And, of course, when she made them visible, she made Coriakin visible. She made Aslan visible. So in this chapter, the duffel puds made happy. They become visible. So you get to look at them. You get to see them. Uh, and, and they're given their name, Duffel Puds. Let me just start at the beginning. Uh, again, focus. Lewis wants you to really focus on Reaper Cheap. Secondly, Lucy. We want to be Lucy and Reaper Cheap when we grow up, some mixture of that. Lucy followed the great line out into the passage. Uh, this is in the house. And at once she saw coming toward them an old man, barefoot, dressed in a red robe. His white hair was crowned with a chaplet of oak leaves. His beard fell to his girdle, and he supported himself with a curiously carved staff. Some people who just read this think this is Father Christmas, like you see Father Christmas showing up in the line of the witch and wardrobe, but we have the rest of the book. You will learn later who this is. It's not Father Christmas. Um, anyway, when, when he saw, when this character saw Aslan, he bowed low and he said, Welcome, sir, 
to the least of your houses. Do you grow weary, Coryakin? That's his name, Coryakin. Do you grow weary, Coryakin, of ruling such foolish subjects as I have given you? No, said the magician. They are very stupid. That's his word, not mine. They are very stupid, but there is no real harm in them. These are the duffers. I begin to grow rather fond of the creatures. Sometimes, perhaps, I'm a little impatient, waiting for the day when they can be governed by wisdom instead of this rough magic. Yeah, he just has to keep them reined in. He has to govern them by this rough magic. He's looking forward when the day will come they can be governed by wisdom. All in good time, Corey Aiken. This little section here should lead you to think about time, time in reference to Aslan, time in reference to God. Uh, this section should make you think about um, Psalm chapter 90, the 90th Psalm, around about verse 4, uh, the, which is also quoted in Second Peter, where you run across that phrase in the Bible, a thousand years is as a day to God, a day is as a thousand years. I mean, I'm sure you understand the way we keep time. It's not the way God keeps time. There's no past, present, and future in the mind of God. Everything's just the eternal present in the mind of God. God doesn't wake up on Monday and say, I wonder what I'm going to do on Tuesday. We're the ones that have the calendars. Uh, the way we keep time is, is a human necessity and invention. Time is very different for God. You're going to see that here. Um, so when, when, is, when is the time going to come when these duffers are governed by wisdom? Uh, Aslan says, all in good time, Corey Aiken. Yes, all in very good time, sir, was the answer. Do you intend to show yourself to them? Nay, says the lion, said the lion with a little half growl that meant Lucy thought the same as a laugh. I should frighten them out of their senses. Many stars will grow old and come to take their rest in islands before your people are ripe for that. You, you are going to notice, you're going to learn later, that Corey Aiken, and there's going to be another one, these are, these are retired stars, decommissioned stars, fallen stars. So you get a little reference there. I should frighten them out of their senses. Many stars will grow old and come to take their rest in, in islands before your people are ripe for that. In other words, the duffers are pretty stupid. It's going to be a long time before they'll be governed by wisdom. But, um, yeah, you probably, never, you probably never thought about what happens to retired stars when they decide to quit shining. But uh, Narnia knows what, happen, what happens to them. And today, before sunset, I must visit Trumpkin the Dwarf. Remember, that's from the last book, Trumpkin the Dwarf where he sits in the castle of Care Paravel, counting the days, again back to time, counting the days till his master Caspian comes home. I will tell him, tell them, I will tell, I will tell him all your story, Lucy. Do not look so sad. We shall soon meet again. So, so Aslan's going back to Care Paravel in Narnia. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, what do you call soon? That's a question we want to ask. God, often, what do you call soon? Remember in the book of Revelation. You're told at the beginning of the book of Revelation, all of these things must soon happen. Well, we're still saying, what do you mean by soon, Lord? So again, we, you know, we need to think about this concept of time for God because hopefully this work becomes practical. It will help us with our patience.
God doesn't get in a hurry. God's timing is perfect. God's never early. God's never late. We're the ones that freak out by time because we're sort of control freaks. So that's why this question is going on here. Please, as and said, Lucy, what do you call soon? I call all times soon. There's a great section in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis just writes about time and God. Yeah, again, time's a human invention. Uh, this is a little mind-boggling because we can't imagine not being constrained by time. I'm sure you know people in your life, some people are more tyrannized by the clock than others. I got family members that I wish were more tyrannized by the clock. They can't ever seem to be on time for anything. Um, but yeah, that's a human condition. That's, that's not God's condition. I called all times soon, said Aslan. And instantly he was vanished away, and Lucy was alone with the magician, Koryakin. Gone, said he, and you and I quite crestfallen. It's always like that. You can't keep him. It's not as if he were a tame lion. Again, back to the line, the witch in the wardrobe. He's, 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 um, he's not a tame lion. Uh, you can't control him, but he's a good, he's a good lion. So that's where the story starts. Um, so, yeah, the duffel pugs, or duffers still at this point, have been made visible. Um, and so Lucy starts having a conversation with Corey Aiken about these strange creatures that Corey Aiken has to... Um, has to govern, most of us do think, in a style reminiscent of Gulliver's Travels, these duffers, soon to be duffel puds, are probably symbolic of we humans. You know, can you imagine governing humans? Can you imagine what God's frustration is governing humans? We, we don't always run our lives according to wisdom. Um, anyway, so they're having this conversation. Uh, you notice that um, they, they were uglified. <laughs> and by the way, that word comes from not a friend, but a, um, and a well, Lewis Carroll, uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Of course, Lewis Carroll was a professor at Christ College decades before Lewis was at Maudlin College. Those are both colleges in Oxford. They're almost across the street from each other. So uh, Lewis knew, I mean, Lewis, C.S. Lewis knew Lewis Carroll's work well. That's where you get, that's why it's in Alice in Wonderland. You get the concept of uglification. Well, these duffers have been uglified. Um, they, they, they were sort of punished, you notice, Koryakin said, because they wouldn't do what they were told. Besides being not smart, they're lazy. Uh, they wouldn't do what they were told. Um, I love the paragraph on the next page. Uh, I'm on page 165 of my edition. You know, are, are they as stupid as all that, said Lucy. I, I love this passage. A magician's side, you wouldn't believe the troubles I've had with them. A few months ago, they were all for washing up the plates and knives before dinner. They said it saved time afterwards. I caught them planting boiled potatoes to save cooking them when they were dug up. One day the cat got into the dairy and 20 of them were at work moving all the milk out. No one thought of moving the cat. 
but I see you, you've, you, but I see you finished. Let's go and look at the duffers now that, that they can be looked at. Well, so they go out and they, they look at the duffers. Notice Lucy says they look like, when she looks at them first, they look like mushrooms. Uh, and you see that on the page 167 with um, Pauline Bain's um, uh, sketch. Because they're laying down on their back with their foot up in the air. So Lucy thinks they look like mushrooms. You learn there's 50 or more of these creatures. Um, you, get, you, get, you get that one look of them on page 167 with the, um, them laying down. But if you turn the page 168 in my edition, you see the full picture of these creatures. You know, one leg, not, not like a pirate, but in the center of their body. You, you've got a foot that um, you're going to see later is, is a useful foot. Uh, anyway, they're visible now. Um, they think they, you know, outsmarted the magician, but they really haven't. Uh, anyway, so that's how they—that's how they come back to be visible. Um, those are the duffel pods. Uh, they're duffers. You notice on page one seventy three, and and so Lucy and Corey Aiken, as they talk about them, they, 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 when they see them, they call them like monopods or monopods, you know, one, one leg. Um, so on page 173, you see their name that we now know them as. The Duffers were all so very pleased with their new name of monopods, which seemed to them a magnificent name, though they never got it right. That's what we are. They bellowed moneypuds, promenades, potimons. They couldn't even say the word. Just what it was on their, just what it was on the tip of their tongues to call ourselves. But, but they soon got it mixed up with the old name of Duffers, and they finally settled down to calling themselves Duffelpuds, and that is what they will probably be called for centuries. And they are, they are. So the story sort of ends. Just look at the paragraph, last paragraph of this chapter. Uh, next day, the magician magically mended the stern of the Dawn Treader. Uh, where it had been damaged by the sea serpent, remember the sea serpent, uh, and loaded her with useful gifts. And I love this closing image. There was a most friendly parting, and when she sailed two hours before noon, all the duffelpuds paddled out with her to the harbor mouth and cheered until she came out of, out of the sound of their cheering. It was Reepicheep who taught them that they, they could use their big foot for a boat or canoe. So they started doing that. Anyway, um, now let's go to the Dark Island. The Dark Island is probably one of the most horrifying chapters in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he did change it slightly, then modern editions went back to the older edition. Um, and most of us think he may have changed a few things, really, really minor things, trying to make it less horrifying than maybe the original was. Uh, anyway, here they are. They're selling. They see what appears to be land. They're going to learn it's not land. It's not a great dark mountain rising out of the sea. Uh, they get closer to to the what they're looking at that looks like land, but it really is just a smooth, solid blackness or darkness. I love that sketching on page 178 by Pauline Baines that shows you what they're selling toward. It, you know, it looked like a mountain, but it's just darkness. It's just darkness. 
So they're selling toward that. At the bottom of page 177, look, catch up the story. Caspian shouted to the boatswain to keep her back, and all except the rowers rushed forward and gazed from the bows. But there was nothing to be seen by gazing. Behind them was the sea and the sun, before them the darkness. Do we go into it? asked Caspian at length. Not by my advice, said Drenian, who's the captain of the ship. The captain's right, said several sailors. I almost think he is, said, said Edmund. Lucy and Eustace didn't speak up, but they felt very glad inside at the turn of things. Uh, very glad inside at the turn of things seemed to be taking. Now, if you, even if you don't read the next sentence, you know who's going to want to plow right into the darkness. Reap cheap. But all at once, the clear voice of Reepicheep broke in upon the silence. And why not, he said. Will someone explain to me why not? No one was anxious to explain, so Reepicheep continued. If I were addressing peasants or slaves, he said, I might suppose that this suggestion proceeded from cowardice. But I hope it will never be told in Narnia that a company of noble and royal persons in the flower of their age turned tail because they were afraid of the dark. But what manner of use would it be plowing through that blackness, said Drenian. Use, replied Rebecheep, use, Captain. If by use you mean filling our bellies or our purses, I confess it may it will be no use at all. So far as I know, we do not set sail to look for things useful, but to seek honor and adventure. And here is as great an adventure as I ever heard of. And here, if we turn back, no little impeachment of all of, of all our honors. Yeah, Ruby Cheap says, you know, get a little backbone here. That's sort of what C.S. Lewis is saying to Christians. Get a little backbone here. Don't be scared to death of life, intimidated by life. Don't center your life on fear. You know, courage is a Christian virtue. Now, there are times, you know, we should know this, I, I assume. Reaper Chief's not perfect. There are times he goes too far. C.S. Lewis sort of points it out in Chronicles. He goes too far with his desire for honor and bravery and adventure. But I think C.S. Lewis would have said we go too far short of bravery and courage. So we need we need Reaper Chief to sort of balance us. But yeah, sometimes he does go too far. And you can just imagine everybody rolling their eyes as Reaper Cheap is lecturing them about they should plow into this darkness. And it is very ominous if you look at Pauline Bain's sketch. Um, so um, they, they sort of say, oh, bother you, Captain, or Caspian says, oh, bother you, Reaper Cheap. I almost wish we'd left you at home. All right, if you put it that way, I suppose we shall have to go on and watch this. Unless Lucy, the girl... Would rather not. Lucy felt that she would very much rather not, but what she said out loud was, I'm game. They were hoping Lucy would get them out of it. But Lucy, like Reaper Cheap, says, let's, let's go on. Anyway, so you notice they say, and now in Aslan's name, forward. And then it's just a beautiful, it's beautiful writing here, bottom of page 180, uh, beginning the last paragraph with a creak and a groan. The dawn treaders started to creep forward as the men began to row. Lucy, up in the fighting top, had a wonderful view of the exact moment when they entered the darkness. Uh, the bows had already disappeared before the sunlight had left the stern. 
she, she saw it go. At one minute, the gilded stern, the blue sea, and the sky were all in broad daylight. Next minute, the sea and sky had vanished. The stern lantern, which had hardly been noticeable before in all the light, was the only thing to show where the ship ended. In front of the lantern, she could see the black shape of Drinian crouching at the tiller. Down below her, the two torches made visible two small patches of deck and gleamed on swords and helmets. And forward, there was another island of light on the, what's the word there? Foxel. yep. Uh, apart from that, the fighting top lit by the masthead light, which was only just above her, seemed to be a little lighted world of its own floating in the lonely darkness. And the lights themselves, as always happens with lights, when you have to have them at the wrong time of day, looked lurid and unnatural. She also noticed she was very cold. I think that's just masterful writing. I mean, you can see and feel what it's like to be driving into this darkness. Now, by the way, don't always want to do your theologizing for you, but I will sometimes. The dawn treader, the symbol for the church, plowing into the darkness. C.S. Lewis is assuming you're picking up as adults what he's putting down. You know, we don't run from the darkness, we run to the darkness. We try to defeat the darkness. We don't hide and, and cower when we see darkness. We are called to wrestle with powers and principalities. So C.S. Lewis is taking, hopefully, is hoping you take note that they don't turn tail and run. The dawn treader. The ship that heads toward the dawn. The ship that has to go through the darkness to get to the dawn. That's why after you go through the darkness, you're going to start seeing the dawn as you get toward the, the rest of um, the book. Yeah, I was hoping you adults pick this up. Um, yeah, there's going to be times we have to go into the darkness. Now, so they're, they're, they're heading into this darkness. Um, just keep reading. How long this voyage into the darkness lasted, nobody knew. Sometimes it seems like we're in the darkness a long time. Except for the creak of the rowlocks and the splash of the oars, there was nothing to show that they were moving at all. Edmund, peering from the bows, could see nothing except the reflection of the lantern in the water before him. It looked a greasy sort of reflection. The ripple made by their advancing prow appeared to be heavy, small, and lifeless. As time went on, everyone except the rowers began to shiver with cold. And here comes, I think, one of the most horrifying parts of the story. Suddenly, from nowhere... Now remember, they're in darkness. Suddenly from nowhere, no one's sense of direction was very clear by now. There came a cry, either of some inhuman voice or else a voice of one in such extremity of terror that he had almost lost his humanity. Yeah, that got their attention, I'm sure. Caspian was still trying to speak. His mouth was too dry. When the shrill voice of Reepicheep which sounded louder than usual in that silence, was heard. Who calls? It piped, Reaper Cheap. If you are a foe, we do not fear you. And if you are a friend, your enemies shall be taught the fear of us. I just love Reaper Cheap. And here's what the voice begins to cry down in the water. 
Mercy, cried the voice, mercy. Even if you are only one more dream, we're going to talk about dreams, have mercy. Take me on board, take me, even if you strike me dead, but in the name of all mercies, do not fade away and leave me in this horrible land. Where are you, shouted Caspian? Come aboard and welcome. There came another cry, whether joy or terror, and then they knew that someone was swimming toward them. Stand by to heave him up, men, said Caspian. Aye, aye, your majesty, said the sailors. Several crowded to the port board with ropes, and one, leaning far out over the side, held the torch. A wild, white face appeared in the blackness of the water. And then, after some scrambling and pulling, a dozen friendly hands had heaved the stranger on board. Edmund thought he had never seen a wilder-looking man, though he did not otherwise look very Old. His hair was an untidy mop of white. His face was thin and drawn, and for clothing only a few wet rags hung around him. But what one man mainly noticed were his eyes, which were so widely open that he seemed to have no eyelids at all and stared as if in an agony of pure fear. The moment his feet reached the deck, he said, Fly, fly, about with your ship and fly. Row, row, row for your lives away from this accursed shore. Compose yourself, said Reepicheep, and tell us what the danger is. We are not used to flying. We'd probably say we're not used to fleeing, but we're not used to fleeing. We're not used to flying. The stranger started, started horribly at the voice of the mouse, which he had not seen before. Nevertheless, you will fly from here, he gasped. This is the island where dreams come true. Now, to start with, they get excited by that. I mean, they, 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 they get excited by that. He says, fools, you don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about daydreams. I'm not talking about wishes or hopes. Or I'm not talking about even good night dreams. I'm talking about nightmares. This is the place where your most horrible nightmares come true. Um, only Reepicheep remained unmoved. Um, and it's kind of fascinating. Just back up a minute. He's saying this to them, and the, you know, the, the crew, they're all excited that this is a place where their dreams are going to come true. It says the bottom of page 183. I just love this image. There was about a half a minute's silence. Sometimes it takes a little bit for us to process things. There was about half a minute's silence, and then with a great clatter of armor, the whole crew were tumbling down the main hatch as quick as they could and flinging themselves on the oars to row as they had never rowed before and Drennan was swinging around the tiller and the boatswain was giving out the quickest stroke that he had ever been heard at, has ever been heard at sea for it had taken everyone just that half minute to remember certain dreams they had had. Dreams that make you afraid of going to sleep again and, realize, and to realize what it would mean to land on a country where those kind of dreams come true. Only Reepicheep remained unmoved. I think Lewis probably would say at this point he's too stubborn. He's, he's really moved beyond bravery to just being stubborn. Uh, your Majesty, Your Majesty said, are you going to tolerate this mutiny, this poltroonery, whatever that is? This is a panic. This is a rout. Row, row, bellowed Caspian. Pull for all your lives. Is her head right, Drennan? You can, because they're disoriented. Is your head right? You can say what you like, Reepicheep. There are some things no man can face. And that's what Reepicheep says. It is then my good fortune not to be a man. 
replied Reepicheep with a stiff bow. But he does consent to his majesty, which is a good thing. But he, he can be stubborn. He can be stubborn. Reepicheep's not a perfect little mouse. And did you, and on the next page, and soon everyone was hearing things. Each one heard something different. Do you hear a noise like, like a huge pair of scissors opening and shutting over there? Eustace asked Reinef. I don't know why. That could be horrifying if you think about it. You're just hearing this huge pair of scissors. Hush, said Reinef. I can hear them crawling up them, them in italic. I can hear them crawling up the sides of the ship. It's just going to settle on the mast. It's, said Caspian. Ugh, there are gongs beginning. I knew they would. So it's like the darkness is attaching itself to the ship. You start hearing these gongs. You know, finally, you know, Caspian asked Drennan, how long have we sailed into the darkness? And um, Drennan says about five minutes. Um, so, of course, they're wondering how long they can get out. And if, on page 186, of course, the wild man, you'll learn later, by the way, the wild man is another one of the lost lords of Narnia. Uh, the wild man starts screaming, we shall never get out. Never get out. Um, that's it, of course. We shall never get out. What a fool I was to have thought they would let me go as easily as that. No, no, we shall never get out. Here's a beautiful passage. And uh, you as adults, I'm sure, know what's going on here. Lucy, of course it has to be Lucy. Lucy leaned her head over, lent her head over the edge of the fighting top and whispered, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us at all, send us help now. The darkness did not grow any less, but she began to feel a little, very, very little better. Yeah, sometimes the darkness doesn't go away. We just get a little better at tolerating the darkness, and we get a little stronger. After all, nothing has really happened to us yet, she thought. Luke cried Rhinoph's voice hoarsely from the, from the bows. There was a tiny fleck, speck of light ahead. And while they watched, a broad beam of light fell from it upon the, upon the ship. It did not alter the surrounding darkness. Again, it doesn't always alter the surrounding darkness. But the whole ship was lit up, the church. The whole ship was lit up as if by searchlight. Caspian blinked, stared around, saw the faces of the companions, all with wild, fixed expressions. Everyone was staring in the same direction behind uh, everyone behind everyone lay by his black, sharp, sharply edged shadow. Lucy looked at the beam, beam of light, and presently saw something in it. At first, it looked like a cross. Yeah, you should be picking up what he's putting down here. At first, it looked like a cross. Then it looked like an airplane. Then it looked like a kite. And at last, with a whirring, whirring of wings, it was right overhead. And it's what? Albatross. And there's a lot of imagery connected with Albatross. There's even some Christian imagery of Albatross being a symbol for Christ. Uh, you remember the rhyme of the ancient mariner, maybe. Um, that poem where, you know, the mariners understand it's bad luck to kill an um, Albatross. If you see one, it's good luck for the ship. Anyone, so, so here comes this Albatross. It's circled three times around the mast and then perched for an instant 
on the crest of the gilded dragon at the prow, it called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words, though no one understood them. After that, it spread its wings, rose, and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to the starboard. Drenian steered after it, not doubting that it offered good guidance. But no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart, said the voice. She felt sure it was Aslan's. And with the voice, a delicious smell breathed into her face, in her face. So, what do we call what Lucy did that brought the albatross? Prayer, yeah. You can put a P beside it if you don't get that. Yeah, she, she prayed. Aslan, save us. And Aslan does. You know, Aslan either comes in the form of an albatross or he takes the form of an albatross or he sends an albatross. Aslan saves them. It appears to be Aslan because that's whose voice she hears. Courage, dear heart. Yeah, sometimes when we're in the darkness, that's what we get is the courage and strength to withstand the darkness. You know, we just want the darkness to go away. But sometimes the dawn treader needs to stay in the darkness because we've got work to do. In, in, in the darkness. Um, anyway, they get out. Uh, they, they are led out by, by the albatross. Um, they kind of lose their fear. By the way, if you know C.S. Lewis, if you ever read like his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he was plagued his whole life by nightmares. By nightmares. You want to take a guess where they came from? World War One. Coming out of World War One, he was plagued his whole life with nightmares. That's probably behind this chapter too. You know, you kind of wake up, and you're so glad to wake up out of those nightmares, and you realize there wasn't really anything to be afraid of. Um, anyway, so they 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 sell out. They actually begin laughing um, as they sell away. And they look back, you'll even notice, um, you know, that it disappears. The, dar the darkness vanishes. Um, and, ev and eventually, you know, the albatross also vanishes after they get led out to safely, safety. That's an amazing chapter. That's an amazing chapter. You'll have to decide if it's too scary for your grandchildren. Um, I, most of us, because he tweaked it some, we think he probably started having some started having some, some second thoughts about that. But notice, notice the dark island and the darkness vanished forever, it says. Um, anyway, so the whole tenor of the book changes now. You start selling out of the darkness as you get closer to Aslan's world, the kingdom, as you get closer to world's end, heaven. Uh, so as, as that happens... Everything changes. Notice, look at chapter 13 now. Just feel the difference. The wind never failed, but it grew gentler every day till at length the waves were little more than ripples, and the ship glided on hour after hour, almost as if they were sailing on a lake. 
And every night they saw that there arose in the east in the east new constellations, which no one had ever seen in Narnia, and perhaps as Lucy thought, with a mixture of joy and fear, no living eye had been had seen it all. Those new stars were big and bright, and the nights were warm. Most of them slept on deck and talked far into the night or hung over the ship's side watching the luminous dance of the foam uh, thrown up by their bows. On an evening of startling beauty, when the sunset behind them was so crimson and purple, those colors are historically associated with royalty. And it's not going to be the last time you're going to run across crimson and purple in this chapter. Because they're, they're getting closer to Aslan's world. Uh, behind them was so crimson and purple and widely spread that the very sky itself seemed to have grown larger. They came in sight of land. And you notice it even says uh, an attractive smell came from that land. What Lucy called a dim purple kind of smell. Which Edmund said and Rents thought was rot. But Casman said, I know what you mean. I'm not sure what a purple kind of smell is. Unless you mean lilac. I'm not sure what a purple kind of smell is. But Lewis is trying to use, and he's going to talk about crimson again. Purple and crimson are colors associated with royalty. Um, So they're getting to this island. They, They get to this island. They decide to go visit the island. Now, it's kind of humorous, but you notice on page 191, the Lord Roop, by this point, you know that the person they rescued in the darkness was one of the lost lords of Narnia, Lord Roop. Yeah, the Lord Roop ain't getting off that boat again. The Lord Roop remained on board the Dawn Treader. He wished to see no more islands. So he wanted to stay safely on that ship. He wanted no more adventures like Roop Cheap wanted. So anyway, they, they start walking all the island. It's beautiful. There's not much there. Um, they, they start seeing something. Are they trees? Page 192. Are they trees, said Caspian. Towers, I think, said Eustace. It might be giants, said Edmund in a lower voice. The, the way to find out is to go right in among them, said Rupachip, drawing his sword and pattering off ahead of everyone. I think it's a ruin, said Lucy. Of course, Lucy's right. When they had got a great deal, good deal nearer, and her guess was the best so far, what they now saw was a wide, watch this, a wide oblong space, flagged with smooth stones, surrounded by great pillars, but unroofed, open to the stars, and from end to end of it ran a long table laid with a rich crimson cloth, that came down nearly to the pavement. At either side of it were many chairs of stone richly carved and with silken cushions upon the seat. But on the table itself there was set out such a banquet as had never been seen, not even when Peter, the high king, kept his court at Caraparavel. So they're looking at this table, And again, as a Christian, just think table, Christian faith, table. They're looking at this table, and um, as they get closer, it becomes fascinating. You see Pauline Bain's sketch on page 194. The table's covered with a lot of hair. If you have the version of the Chronicles where Pauline Bain's helped oversee the colorizing of her sketches, um, if you have the color versions of the Chronicles, you see there are gray hairs, lots of gray hairs on the table. 
Well, again, they, they're trying to figure out what these things are. Uh, what are those? Asked Lucy in a whisper. It looks like three beavers sitting at the table or a huge bird's nest, said Edmund. It looks like a haystack to me, said Caspian. But of course, it's Ripacheep who runs forward, jumps on a chair, and sits onto the table and ran along, threading his way as nimbly as a dancer between jeweled cups and pyramids of fruit and ivory salt cellars. He ran right up to the mysterious gray mass at the end, peered, touched, and then called out. These will not fight, I think. So there are three men. You notice the chapter is entitled The Three Sleepers. This is the island, island of the three sleepers. There are three men. They're not dead. That's why their hair keeps growing. Evidently, their hair's been growing for a long time. Uh, so their hair's growing. As you see the picture there. Their hair's growing. The hair's covered all the table. Um, there's three men that have been asleep. It must be an enchanted sleep, they decide. Um, and then they, they, they're looking at... Um, they're, they're, they're looking, well, they say, they, they, they feel like, they, they come to believe that these are the other lords. That's why at the bottom of page 195, yes, says Caspian, you're right, Drenian. I, I think our quest is at an end. Let's look at their rings. Yes, these are their devices or their symbols or their tokens. This is, this is the Lord Rev, Revillian and the Lord Argos, and this is Lord Mavramorn. Okay, they found all their lords now. So that's who's asleep at this table. Um, but we can't wake them, said Lucy. What are we to do? Begging your majesty's pardon, all said Rince. But why not fall to why you're discussing it? We don't see a dinner like this every day. Not for your life, said Caspian. Yeah, the hair would keep me from eating it myself. Not for your life, said Caspian. That's right, that's right, said several of the sailors. Too much magic about here. The sooner we're back on board, the better. Uh, depend upon it, said Reepicheep. It was from an eating it was from eating these foods that the three lords came by a seven years sleep. So they've been sleeping seven years. I wouldn't touch it to save my life, said Drenian. The light's going uncommon quick. It's getting dark. Back to the ship, back to the ship, muttered the men. Well, you know what's gonna come next. I really think Edmund, they're right. We said Edmund, we, we we can decide we can decide what to do with these three sleepers tomorrow. We daren't eat the food, and and there's no point in staying here for the night. The whole place smells like magic and danger. Well, you know what Reepicheep's going to say. I am entirely of Edmund's opinion, said Reepicheep, as far as it concerns the ship's company in general. But I myself will sit at the table till sunrise. Why on earth, says Eustace? Because, said the mouse, this is a very great adventure, and no danger seems to me so great as that of knowing when I get back to Narnia that I left a mystery behind me through fear. He's not going to live his life based on fear. And then, and, so, and his courage becomes contagious. I'll stay with you, Reap, says Edmund. And I too, says Caspian. And me, said, said Lucy. And then even Eustace volunteers to stay. So the courage of Reepicheep becomes contagious. This was very brave of him because never having read of such things or even heard of them till he joined the Dawn Treader made it worse for him than for the others. So, so they stay. And um, they, they try to get sort of close to the perilous table. They stay there.
They stay there through the night. And then you kind of notice how the chapter ends. Um, notice on page 198, toward the bottom, second last paragraph beginning before the bottom. After hours that seemed like ages, there came a moment when they all knew they had been dozing a moment before, but were all of suddenly wide awake. The stars were all in quite different positions from those they had noticed. The sky was very black except for the faintest possible grayness in the east. They were cold, though thirsty and stiff, and none of them spoke because now at least something was happening. Before them, beyond the pillars, there was a slope of a low hill, and a door opened in, in the hillside. And this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful tall girl comes out. She comes out. Uh, they had never before known what beauty, beauty meant until they see this tall girl come out. This tall girl comes out and meets them. Um, they felt like she was a great lady. Um, she was. You're going to learn later more about her. Um, and, and she tells them what happened to these three. And, I hope, and this is where, again, C.S. Lewis is hoping that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, especially along about verse 30, pops into your mind. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, the sacrament, the Eucharist, Holy Communion. And he's giving orders to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. And he says, don't, don't abuse the Lord's Supper. Don't use the Lord's Supper to abuse each other. Um, because that's a misuse of the Lord's Supper. And Paul says in verse 30 of chapter 11, toward the end of where he's talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, some people who have abused this table have grown weak and ill, and some have even fallen. Modern translations say dead, have, become, have died. The King James is right. Some have even fallen asleep because they abused the table. Now, sleep in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, is a euphemism for death. But the text says they fell asleep. Some fall asleep because they've abused the Lord's Supper. Well, these three abused the Lord's Supper. They abused the table. Uh, this wonderful woman tells them how. Did you notice what it was? You have to pay attention to what you're reading. What was it that abused the table that caused these three to fall into this deep sleep? at the table. They got it, the knife. The knife, there's a knife on the table. A stone knife that you should sort of remember if you read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. The stone knife that took Aslan's life. Again, we know what this table's symbolizing. The stone knife that took um, um, Aslan's life in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe is laying on the table. And the three lords get in an argument and they start to fight, and one of them grabs the knife to harm the other two. Um, and they quarreled, and as they quarreled, he caught up the knife of stone, that's what's called the knife of stone, which lies there on the table and would have fought with his comrades. But it is a thing not right for him to touch. And as his fingers closed upon the hilt, deep sleep fell upon all three. You know, we don't talk about... Um, treating things today sacrilegiously, do we? We've lost that from our culture. 
we don't talk much about abusing holy things anymore in our culture. Um, C.S. Lewis's culture did some. It was fading away in his day. But yeah, that table means something. That table's sacred. That table is symbol like all Lord's Supper symbolize the final banquet, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why you just get a little taste of it right now, but it symbolizes the final banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Go read the book of Revelation. So it, it means a lot. It's sacred to us. It's not a place to fight. It's not a place to take advantage of other people. We need to handle holy things carefully. Yeah, we need to kind of re, resuscitate that word sacrilegious. This culture knows nothing about you know, being sacrilegious. This culture knows nothing about blaspheming. Well, blaspheming means God. This culture knows nothing about blaspheming God. Um, C.S. Lewis is making sure you understand this is a sacred spot. Because where are you getting? You're getting near Aslan's world. That's why this table's here. Um, let me show you something. Even, just in case you're a little slow picking this up, on the bottom of page 201, um, Sire, cheap, said to Caspian, of your courtesy, fill my cup with wine from that flagon. It is too big for me to lift. I will drink to the lady. Caspian obeyed, and the mouse standing on the table held up a golden cup between its tiny paws and said to this lady, you'll learn more about her later, he said, lady, I pledge you. You know what the Latin word is for pledge? Now, I know they don't teach Latin anymore. You know what the Latin word for pledge is? Sacramentum. Sacrament. Uh, the sacraments mean a lot of things, but one of the things it means literally in the word sacramentum, the sacramentum was a pledge that the Roman soldiers took, a pledge of loyalty that they took to their commanders, their Caesars, their, their rulers, their, 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 the people who were in governance over them. Sacramentum. So every time you take the Lord's Supper, you are pledging your loyalty and your life to the one who provided that supper. Um, C.S. Lewis is hoping you hear Reba Cheap say, Lady, I pledge you. Yeah, I mean, there's been very, very few scholars who say, Oh, C.S. Lewis is not talking about the Lord's Supper. He's not talking about the Eucharist. I, I don't think there's any way you can read this. Again, this that appears at the beginning of their uh, ascent to the east is the Lord's Supper. Um, Notice, if you if you slow picking it up, look on page 202. Why is it called Aslan's Table? Ask Lucy presently, asking this beautiful lady. It is set here by his bidding. I try to say every time we celebrate the sacrament, this is not our table. It's not Wesley Memorial's table. It's the Lord's Table. Why is it called Aslan's table? Asked Lucy presently. It is set here by his bidding, said the girl. For those who come so far, some call this island world's end. For though you can sail further, this is the beginning of the end. Every time you take the sacrament, that's a foretaste of the banquet that we're heading toward. It's the beginning of the end. It symbolizes the beginning of the end. Every time you take the sacrament, it should be a thin place between this world and the world to come. That's why it's called a holy communion, a holy fellowship with, with Jesus. And um, that's, what, that's what the sacrament is. It breaks my heart that for some people, it's a wafer that doesn't even taste like bread and Welch's grape juice. That's all they see. 
And it's something that adds a little length to the worship service. Some people, that's all they see. And that is so sad to me. So sad to me. It is, it's, that's, the, that's, that's the moment we get to begin to really taste heaven in Christian worship. Anyway, so, um, yeah, you, you, notice, um, you notice how this chapter ends. Notice, how does the food keep as the practical use does? It is eaten and renewed every day. Yeah, we've been taking this Lord's Supper now for 2,000 years. We eat it, and it's renewed. It comes back. Said the girl, this you will see. And what do we do about the sleeper? Said Caspian, in, in the world from which my friends come, they have a story of a prince or a king coming to a castle. Watch this. Coming to a castle where all the people lay in an enchanted sleep. In that story, he could not dissolve the enchantment until he had kissed the princess. But here, said the girl, it is different. Here he cannot kiss the princess till he has dissolved the enchantment. We call that flirting, if you don't know that. Spoiler alert, she becomes the wife of Caspian. Flirting. Flirting. Yeah, he, he makes reference to Sleep of Beauty, and she says, but here it's different. Here... The prince cannot kiss the princess till he has dissolved the enchantment. He's sort of saying dissolve the enchantment, and then you get to kiss the princess. He, they, he, she does become his wife. Uh, then said Caspian, in the name of Aslan, show me how to set about that work at once. My father would teach you that, said the girl. Your father, said everyone, who is he and where? If you notice how Lewis likes to end his chapters with cliffhangers, Look, said the girl, turning round and pointing at the door in the hillside. They could see it more easily now, for while they had been talking, the stars had grown fainter, and great gaps of white light were appearing in the grayness of the eastern sky. So next week, you'll see the, uh, the door slowly open, and Ramindu's going to come out. And uh, so next week, we finish the journey um, with this. So great stuff. Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for these people who uh, listen to me ramble about this book. And we pray that somehow your spirit will use this book to help us grow in the faith, help us to see the Christian faith, Christian theology and doctrine and the teachings of the Bible in a different light, in a fresh light. So God, as you've used these books to help train children in the faith, we pray that you'll use these books to help train us in the faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So next.